Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn how to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our new series on the 10 words. With this past Sunday being Pentecost Sunday, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss Sinai and its relation to Pentecost. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening to this episode. And here are Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing Sinai and Pentecost. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts. Alistair just uh, dropped into Birmingham last evening, and uh, he's here for about a month and a half. We'll be meeting and making plans for the coming year and uh, recording podcasts, recording videos, and we'll climax with the fellows program, uh, the Trinity term fellows program at the end of July. So glad you made it, Alistair. Good to have you in person, be able to talk to you face to face and uh, record these podcasts today. Thank you. We're also here with Brian Motes. Brian is keeping us on track technologically. We'll make sure that we don't say anything really stupid. He's uh, alert to uh, long silences and babbling that we fall into. So uh, thanks to Brian for making us sound smarter than we are. Uh, we're going through the 10 words, uh, the so-called 10 commandments. As I mentioned in the first of our episodes on the 10 words, uh, we use that phrase not to be pedantic, but because that's the phrase that's used in the Bible to describe the list of commandments and other things that are given in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. It's helpful, uh, I think, to use the phrase 10 words because it's a reminder that this passage includes things other than what are strictly commandments. They're not all imperatives. There are warnings, there are promises, there are there are other kinds of speech acts in each of these passages that uh, the phrase 10 words alerts us to that uh, 10 commandments might obscure. We were planning to do the first word, but then uh, we're reminded that uh, yesterday was Pentecost. And so we're going to spend this episode talking about the relationship between Sinai and Pentecost, uh, between the 10 words and the gift of the Spirit. Uh, I mentioned this at the beginning of our series that uh, the giving of the law at Sinai is commemorated by Pentecost. Exodus 19.1 tells us that the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sinai and arrived at Mount Sinai in the third month, uh, the third month after the Passover, the first Passover, and the third month into the Exodus, the third month into their sojourn in the wilderness. And that third month place, uh, that third month event is commemorated by the Old Testament Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost was also a first fruits feast. It had other dimensions to it, but among other things, it was a commemoration of the giving of the law. And so when we get to the New Covenant Pentecost, with Pentecost that we have recorded in uh, Acts 2, we already have that background. Uh, we already have that connection being given between the uh, giving of the law at Sinai and the coming of the Spirit. That temporal connection is already built into that event. And so when the Spirit comes, there's a kind of fulfillment of what was taking place at Mount Sinai. And the connection with Mount Sinai is also seen in specific details within the text. For instance, the 3,000 people that are killed in chapter 32 of Exodus, and then the 3,000 who are saved or cut to the heart in um, Acts chapter 2. Mm-hmm. Right. That would be one connection. There's the, the connections of uh, the kind of the phenomenology of the two events is similar. Uh, 
Exodus 19 tells us when the Lord came down on Sinai, he came in thunder and lightning, a thick cloud, a loud trumpet sound. Uh, the people tremble at the foot of the mountain and the, and the mountain shakes. And when the spirit comes into the upper room, he comes as a mighty rushing wind with this great noise. Uh, it's the coming of the glory, the storm cloud of God uh, at Sinai and then again in the upper room. I think the, the fact that we're both in both cases, we're talking about high places throughout scripture. Uh, key events take place on mountaintops the mountaintop of Eden, the mountaintop of Sinai, there's a temple mount. There's uh, uh, mountains in the prophets that are, uh, Zion is lifted up as the chief of the mountains. Jesus is on top of mountains constantly. We don't see the, the uh, apostles in Acts on top of mountains, but we do see them in upper rooms. And I think that's a, that's a kind of cultural form, architectural form of a, of a mountaintop. So the fact that the Spirit comes on, that, on them in that location is also an, a link with Sinai. And the ascent of the leader to the top of the mountain or to the presence of God and then delivering something down I think is an important connection between the two stories and thinking about that connection more generally the juxtaposition of law and spirit or the gift of the spirit in the work of Paul I think finds its foundation in the events of Pentecost. Mm -hmm. Yeah and, and um, Second Corinthians 3 might be the or it would be at least one of the key passages that that lays that out. Uh, where Paul contrasts the two covenants, the covenant that comes as a covenant of condemnation, uh, that comes with glory, but it comes with lesser glory than the new covenant, which is a covenant of reconciliation and mercy. And then he contrasts the uh, giving of the law on tablets of stone with the work of the Spirit, who inscribes God's law not on tablets of stone, but inscribes the law on the tablets of the human heart. Uh, Scott Hafeman's doctoral dissertation uh, is a... Uh, very dense uh, and but thrilling discussion of that passage, teasing out the the way that Paul contrasts the two covenants, the way that um, the new covenant, the gift of the Spirit in particular, is a solution to the problem of the old covenant, which is the hardness of Israel's heart. The problem is not with the law, as Paul says elsewhere. The problem is always with uh, Israel's fleshliness, with their hardness of heart. And then the Spirit comes and inscribes the law in our hearts so that we actually do fulfill the requirements of the law. Uh, that uh, we do fulfill what Torah aimed at all along, uh, not because we have the law alone, but because we have the Spirit who inscribes the law in our hearts. The way that uh, the giving of the law and the giving of the Spirit are juxtaposed. And you, your comment about the, the ascension of the leader, you're talking about Moses going up on the mountain, receiving the word, uh, bringing it down and delivering it to the people. The, covenant, the new covenant equivalent of that is Jesus ascending uh, into the heavenlies, he doesn't come down with tablets. He comes down in, the, in, in and through his spirit. And uh, by that spirit, he inscribes uh, the law on human hearts. So that's the, that's the parallel that you were drawing out. Yes. And when we think of the background of the agricultural feast of, of Pentecost, it might be interesting teasing some of that out. Um, in both the beginning of Luke and in Acts, there's this emphasis upon the, in the beginning of Luke, it's the year of Jubilee in Jesus' teaching in Nazareth. And the Pentecost celebration has very a number of similarities with that feast of, um, or the celebration of the Jubilee year. It's counted in the same way, the seven sevens in chapter 25 of Leviticus and then chapter 23 with the feast of weeks those two things the parallels between them i think 
help us to understand something of what's taking place at Sinai. It's uh, an expression of the liberation of the people um, in miniature. And then later on you have similar themes in the seven days surrounding um, Jericho followed by the seven um, circuits of the city and the blowing of the horn. Mm. And the blowing of the trumpet at Sinai, I think, also connects with Jubilee themes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the connection that I, I made, I don't know if I did it on the podcast, but I've made in teaching on the 10 words recently, uh, is Pentecost as a first fruits celebration that informs our understanding of what's happening in this event at Sinai. Israel has come up out of the land. That's uh, the introduction, the introduction to the first word. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Uh, that's language that goes back to Genesis 1. The plants are brought up, same verb, out of the land. Uh, and Israel is the first fruits that comes up from the ground of Egypt. They are the first fruits people. And so there's already a, a notion of first harvest at Mount Sinai. As Pentecost is celebrated year by year, then they're literally harvesting the first fruits of their crops. But they already have that first fruits notion here in in. Uh, Exodus 20 at, uh, at Sinai. And of course, you, you also have the, that's the, the fulfillment of Pentecost at, uh, uh, with the gift of the Spirit. It's also kind of first fruits. You have the first fruits of the new covenant people, the first fruits of the people who are filled with the Spirit, who are given, given the resurrection life by the Spirit. Uh, so there's, an, uh, again, this harvest theme that uh, connects the two that is uh, linked together by the, the annual celebration of Pentecost throughout. I'm curious to think uh, you could expand on how you would tease out connections between Pentecost and Jubilee. Yes, both of them are a sort of mega Sabbath um, uh, connections with themes of giving rest and concern for those who are in need. In the context of chapter 23 of Leviticus, you have not just the law concerning the celebration of the um, Feast of Weeks, but also the concern for the edges of the fields, that you should not harvest the edges, but you should allow the stranger and those who are poor and those who are in need to be able to glean from that. And that concern for giving liberty to the captives, concern for the poor and their needs, I think those are all concerns that we see that connect those two events. There is a more general presentation of God's gift of the land to his people and the common blessing that all of the people should have in this. I think the first fruits as well, the celebration of that, there's an omer that's presented, mm-hmm. a sheaf that's waved. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether we should connect that with the theme of the manna, that the manna is an omer a day mm-hmm. and that the principle when they enter the land, they're supposed to remember the lessons of the manna. Mm-hmm that that's carried out through the Feast of first fruits and then into the celebration of the, the, the Feast of Weeks and then later on these celebrations that increase the theme of the Sabbath, whether that's the Sabbath year or the principle of the Jubilee, mm-hmm. that every single one of those are pushing against slavery. Mm-hmm. They're also recognizing the blessing that all the people have been given this release and that even those who are slaves, even those who are strangers, should share some of the mm-hmm. benefit of mm-hmm. that. Yeah, just to um, give us a, a particular um, support to what you were saying, uh, Leviticus 23, verses 15 through 21 is the passage that talks about Pentecost. 
as you said, it's counted in the same way that the Jubilee is reckoned seven sevens. But then the right at the center of this chapter, which is largely a calendar of Israel's liturgical, it's their liturgical calendar. But right at the center, you have verse 22, which is, uh, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of the field. That's immediately after the legislation for, for Pentecost. Uh, and it's that's part of the same speech in Leviticus that begins in Leviticus 9, goes through verse 22. That covers both the, the first sheaf uh, event, the first sheaf ritual, and also the day of Pentecost, and the requirement to harv- to leave part of the harvest for the gleaners and the corners of the field for the needy and the alien. So those are all part of the sing- a single speech. So um, the text itself brings out the connection between Pentecost and that the institutionalized charity of gleaning. And in addition to that charitable concern for gleaning, there's also a feast that is celebrated. It's a time of celebration in which there is a concern for the Levite, the stranger, and others. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 9 following, in verse 11, it says, You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Going into Acts chapter 2, there is this emphasis at the end upon eating from house to house. They're celebrating. There's a sense of community in the way that they provide for each other. And in that context, I think we should see some of this Old Testament Pentecost background. Right. Yeah. So I was thinking, as you were reading Deuteronomy, I was thinking to the same thing. You have the the gift of the Spirit, uh, and you have these first fruits elements that we talked about, but then immediately you have, it's like it's following Leviticus 23. Uh, At the end of Acts 2, after the Spirit has been given, you have them knit together in the apostles' teaching, you have them knit together in breaking of bread. You have them knit together in their uh, willingness to sell their property and to distribute it so that there is no poor among them, which is the the aim of the Sabbath laws in Deuteronomy 15. So that you know, all those uh, so the gift of the gift of uh, the Spirit of Pentecost is uh, be, it would be too narrow to say that it's uh, the Spirit is given in order to enable us simply to individually fulfill God's commandments. I think that's true. I think Paul teaches that. But we're also looking at juxtaposing the passages you have. You have uh, Acts 2 showing that the gift of the Spirit is forming the community that is fulfilling what the Torah required of Israel. Uh, This is a new Israel living as Israel was supposed to live, a true Pentecostal life, which which includes uh, these acts of radical charity toward uh, uh, toward the needy who are among them. The Feast of Weeks was also interesting in the fact that there was a connection with leaven being reintroduced. Mm-hmm. Um, what should we make of that? Because the original, the feast of first fruits is around the time of the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the old leaven being purged out. Mm-hmm. And we usually have negative associations with leaven yeah. in Scripture. Yeah. What is it about the Feast of, of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost that helps to explain the introduction of leaven into the sacrifice. Well, uh, leaven is introduced as part of the part of the feast. It's not it's not it's not a, it's not offered on the altar. It's never offered on the altar, but it's it's reintroduced as you said in into in, at the as the name indicates the feast of unleavened bread. They're only eating unleavened bread. Yeah, and leaven has uh, I think is 
not simply an image of negative influence as it is in Jesus' warning against the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. It's a it's a symbol of permeating influence, whether positive or negative. Uh, so uh, the, Jesus tells a parable about the kingdom being like leaven that's put into a lump of dough uh, and, uh, and eventually leavens the entire lump. Uh, the kingdom is working secretly, um, uh, imperceptibly, but in the end, the entire loaf is leavened. I think that's the, that's the uh, at least the immediate sense of that short parable. So the leaven has to do with uh, a permeating influence. It doesn't, which can be good or evil. Uh, and I think particularly when he, when Jesus uses it for, uh, uh, talks about uh, uh, the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. He's talking about teaching. Teaching leavens us, and we have the wrong kind of teaching. Then that leavens us. We're all bread. Uh, we're all bread that we're supposed to offer as uh, life and health to others. That can be poison if we're leavened by the wrong things. If the wrong sort of teaching comes into our ears, then we're leavened in the wrong way. Uh, if we're leavened by the the uh, leaven of God's word, then we, we're a, a loaf of bread that's nourishing. So that's kind of just general background to the question that you're asking. But um, I think, yeah, we do have a kind of sequence in the uh, liturgical calendar of Israel. You have the cutting off of the old, the cutting off of old leaven, the cutting off of Israel, Egypt's influence. Um, so that uh, Israel begins to leaven again in a, in a new context with new leaven. Uh, they don't remain unleavened, but uh, they are at the beginning of the liturgical year, they cut off the old leaven, and then a new leavening begins. By the time you get to Pentecost, you have leavened bread as a symbol of Israel's growth and maturation. When we bring that into the New Testament, I think uh, Jesus' parable, I think is likely he's thinking about specifically about the gift of the Spirit as the permeating, the quiet permeating influence that makes the kingdom grow. The spirit is, uh, you don't know where he's come from or where he's going. He's uh, elusive, and yet the spirit is at constantly at work to, uh, to leaven a lump and to mature the church. Sarnia is also associated with things beyond the giving of the law. It's associated with the plans for the tabernacle, the construction of the tabernacle, and things like the various furniture within the tabernacle, we have it also connected with a marriage between God and his people. How can we think about the development of those themes in the context of Pentecost? Well, I think you're the one to talk about that, since you, since you just yesterday preached a sermon on that topic. <laughs> I mentioned the subject of, of marriage when we think about the relationship between God and his people in 1 Corinthians, where it talks about being one spirit with the Lord. Um, connecting that with being one flesh with someone in sexual relations. That one spirit with the Lord union is established, I believe, at Pentecost, that God gives his spirit to his bride. Um, Christ gives his, as the bridegroom gives his spirit to the bride, and there is this union of head and body. That union, I think, corresponds with what we see in the events of Exodus, where God takes his people to himself. There's a a wedding celebration. I mean, earlier on in the story, we see in chapter two, Moses flees to Midian. He rescues the daughters of Jethro. And then we see Jethro come on the scene and there's a feast. And then the savior marries those who is, he has saved. And 
I think we see a similar thing to that later on where Jethro again comes on the scene after God has delivered his people from Egypt. And after that, there's another wedding ceremony, as it were, as God takes his people to himself. And the law is a marriage covenant. It's not just a set of rules that's given or a treaty. Um, There is a union between God and his people that's established. And as we read the prophets Hosea and places like in Ezekiel and elsewhere, I think we have references back to that, that God's relationship with his people is not just as their Lord or their sovereign or the one to whom they must pay, pay tribute, but their husband. And in the New Testament, at the day of Pentecost, those themes are taken up again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one particular way that that comes out um, in uh, the text of the Ten Words, and I've argued in one of the early ap- earlier episodes that the Lord is addressing Israel as son, then the grammar suggests that he's addressing a, an individual male hearer. Uh, but there's also this marital dimension, uh, particularly in the, the second word, uh, where the Lord warns that those who serve and worship images arouse his jealousy. And jealousy is, is, is a brought out in connection with, with a marital relationship. It's the, it's the proper protectiveness that a husband and wife have for each other. They're properly protective of the exclusiveness of that relationship. And if we attend to images, then we're violating that exclusive relationship and, and rousing the Lord's jealousy. Uh, the other uh, the other thing I was going to say in response to that, uh, one maybe even more vivid, particularly vivid way to think about this, is the sanctuaries of Israel are uh, feminine structures. I think this is particularly evident when you get to the temple and some of the, the uh, terminology that's used. The architectural terminology is all terminology taken from the human body. I mean, we still, we still use that terminology in at least medieval and probably modern architecture, we talked about rib, talk about ribbed vaults. The biblical uh, descriptions use terms like shoulders and and ribs. Talking about a human body, but it's particularly, I think, a feminine body. Uh, so what happens at Sinai after the tabernacle is built, or what happens on Moriah after the temple is built, is that the Lord has the, as the husband enters into the bridal house. What's different in the new covenant? What's different at Pentecost in Acts two? is that bridal house is in fact a people. The distinction that you have in the Old Testament between the architectural house and the human house, that's erased and you have you have no central architectural house anymore. You just have a human house. And the Lord as the husband through the spirit enters in to his people and there is an, um, a marital union, as, as you said, they're, they're made one spirit with one another. So that, yeah, that's a, that's a good... Uh, that's a good connection between the Sinai covenant, which is a marital covenant, and the sealing of the new covenant in Pentecost when the, when the Spirit comes to inhabit his people. The priesthood as well. Um, the Levites are set apart for a blessing after they kill the 3,000 at the events of Sinai. Mm-hmm. When the disciples, or when the people of Jerusalem are cut to the heart by the message of Peter, the apostles, in many ways, are set apart for a new ministry, mm-hmm. and the disciples, the church, as a royal priesthood, just as Israel was in chapter 19 and following. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether we should see not just God inhabiting the temple, but establishing a new people as a priesthood, mm-hmm. establishing also the lights coming down upon the lampstand, mm-hmm. um, the bread of the, the showbread. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think the in general the um, I think the way to read that transition is to see it as a not a, not really as a spiritualization. I think it's a humanization. So all of those uh, temple features, those temple furnishings, the temple itself is translated in the new covenant into uh, into people. So yeah, I think that's exactly right. What in the same way that you have the the you have a demolition of the, any distinction between a uh, architectural house and a human house, or the, uh, the human house is the one that takes takes on a prominence. Uh, that human house is also a priesthood, and it has it is all that the temple was to Israel. Jesus is all that the temple was to Israel, and the church is as the body of Christ. Uh, the church as the people inhabited by the Spirit of Christ ministers all of those gifts of Christ to the world. So yeah, light, bread. The incense of prayer, all the things that are in the temple, are gifted to the church at Pentecost, as it were. And when the when the Spirit inhabits the church, the church becomes the place where all those all those gifts are available and distributed. Reading the New Testament epistles in terms of this, I think we can see a lot is unpacking the implicit ecclesiology that we encounter in the story of Pentecost, read against the background of Sinai. So the contrast between law and spirit, the law of the spirit of life that has been given to us in Christ, um, or the bond between Christ and his people as bridegroom and bride, or the way in which we're a royal priesthood uh, and God is establishing us, building us up as living stones within a new house. All, or the church is a lampstand. All of these themes are read against the background of Sinai as a fulfillment of the meaning of that event, as we see God establishing his tabernacle, establishing his people as a royal priesthood. All of these things anticipate the greater work that occurs at Pentecost that fulfills all of those things, as we've spoken about the tabernacle as a, a symbolic body at the very heart of the people. In the New Testament, there is that entrance into the bodies of the disciples and the establishment of a body of people as the body of the temple. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.